Claude, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. Thank you. I feel welcomed. Yeah, on the podcast that translates Trump, we try to take an honest look at him, at his administration, at his attorney general, at his secretary of state, at all these folks, and expose the threats to this country posed by lots of things, even though a lot of critics say he is the existential threat, Donald Trump. Right. Joining me today uh, is Sean Trendy. He's the senior election analyst for Real Clear Politics. He's very solid, very clear, and uh, we'll talk to him. Biden has joined a crowded Democrat field. We'll get his thoughts on how he sees things shaping up. Also, Steve Auth will join the show. Steve is the chief investment officer of Federated Investors, and he's the author of The Missionary of Wall Street, where he shares his experiences as a missionary on the streets of New York. Takes his suit off at uh, Federated, puts on a T-shirt, goes mm-hmm. to get back some rosary beads, and goes down to the city, all over the city, saying, are you Catholic? Would you like to come back to the church? Would you like a free rosary? Right. Fascinating mm-hmm. story. Let me uh, let me talk about a couple of things. The main issue is immigration. I think it will be in 2020. Mm-hmm. By the way, we had a full discussion of that on the latest Wise Guys. I don't know if you've seen. They're doing a lot of publicity for Wise Guys on the Fox channel. And if you want to check out Wise Guys, just go to uh, Fox Nation. It's the yep. app. Mm-hmm. But uh, my panel there predicted it would be number one or number two issue for 2020. Mm-hmm. We could ask Sean Trendy that, too, you know, when, when he comes on. But uh, interesting turn, I was watching news this morning, and they had a gentleman on, and he was a gentleman from uh, Cameroon, mm-hmm. and he told the story of uh, going from Cameroon by boat mm-hmm. across the Atlantic Ocean uh, to uh, Colombia. Right. Mm-hmm. through Up Colombia, through Panama, uh-huh. through the jungles of Panama, fighting off alligators, crocodiles, yep. into uh, Central America. Mm-hmm. He had mentioned Guatemala. Uh, Honduras into Guatemala, Guatemala and, uh, into Costa Rica. Costa Rica think, yeah. and Mexico. Mm-hmm. And now he's hoping to get in. This guy was so solid, so determined. Mm-hmm. I would let him in. I mean, I know, <laughs> I know the rule. you got to play by the rules, but he was right. so impressive. Tells, so, uh, you, tells you two things. The determination of people to get here. Mm-hmm. That's the good news. The bad news, it, it tells you the world now knows. All you got to do is walk through. Now, he didn't. I guess he didn't bring a child with him. Right. So he can't do that family thing. But uh, the word is out. You know, mm-hmm. you can cross this border and your odds are pretty good of staying here. Right. And, you know, I, I remember watching people on TV saying, well, you know, if we don't get control of this, the whole world's going to want to come here. Well, here he is from Cameroon. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. And they interviewed another guy from India mm. who came from India, again, by boat and Colombia and up. So, you know, how many people would like to come to America from around the world? 600 million? Despite the fact that there are some who will argue that this is the most racist, most homophobic, uh, you know, country in the world and that no one should be here. That's noise. We know that's just noise. However, everyone from around the world is trying to get here. Yeah, and that's my old Gates test, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Which way do people run when you raise the gates? Anyway, um, it's fascinating. President is, um, as we speak... Meeting with uh, Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. and Chuck Schumer. By the time right. people listen to this, they'll know how that came out. It's supposed to be talking about infrastructure, but I, I sure hope they're talking about immigration as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to, you know, steal the thunder from Sean Trendy, and he knows a lot more than I do. But I did did see this item by the fabulous Molly Hemingway, who mm-hmm. works for the Federalist and works for Fox. According to Arlen Specter, former Senator Specter from Pennsylvania who was at the hearings for the confirmation of Clarence Thomas when the whole Anita Hill thing came up. Joe Biden has been saying in the preview to his announcement for running for president and then since that he always believed Anita Hill, he maybe should have done more, et cetera, et cetera. 
But um, it turns out that in uh, Arlen Specter's book, Arlen Specter says uh, that uh, Joe Biden said to him, I believe she's lying. Mm-hmm. That is about Anita Hill. Mm-hmm. Well, if he believes she was lying, and sa- if he said that and believed that she was lying, then he didn't believe her from the very beginning. Right. Uh, if that's true, um, he's in big trouble because he's got to overcome this Hill thing anyway. And he's doing it by protestations that he was, you know, he, he was always with her. Apparently not. Right. So that's a problem. We'll see. And the rest of the Democrat field will discuss with, uh, with, Sean, uh, with Sean Trendy. Watching the situation in Venezuela, I think, again, by the time folks listen to this podcast, there may be real news. There may be change. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll find out about that. Claude, let's uh, tell people how we make sausage here. I want them to listen to this interview with Steve Off. Mm-hmm. You and I have already have just concluded it. Christianity talks about bearing witness. It's a heck of a witness. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Gentle touch, light touch. Mm-hmm. Very inviting. This is not um, the story I was told in Catholic school about uh, St. Christopher carrying the infant Jesus across the river. Do you remember that? No, I wasn't. I think it's St. Christopher. I think it is. I'm pretty sure. Uh, he was a big, strong man, and he used to carry people across. can't remember the context, but he carries the infant Jesus across the river. But then some uh, nun or, or brother or priest took some liberties with the story. Okay. And told us that uh, we might meet up with the St. Christopher one day. And like uh, someone in his story, the story I'm about to tell, he said, this guy wanted to cross the river. And so St. Christopher said, get on my back, I can do it. And as he got halfway across, he said, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? The guy said, no. And he put him down the water, underneath the water. <laughs> he kept doing this. That was kind of a medieval waterboarding. <laughs> so the guy said, yes. I believe. <laughs> I'm a believer. And, I, you know, when you're seven, eight, nine years old, said, well, it kind of makes sense, you know. kind of makes sense. That's not the light touch. Okay. That's St. Christopher. Right. That's, that's <laughs> I was waiting for the light touch. Steve Oth has the light touch. What a witness he bears. Yeah. Very impressive. What a man. What a, what a story in New York. And if you can do that mission work there, you can do it anywhere. We'd be very interested in people's reaction to this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Also interested in what Sean Trendy has to say. Mm-hmm. And can I radically change direction here? Sure. Kyler Murray. Right. Number one pick. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, you know what? Uh, he has the athletic ability to make it. Uh, very undersized. I mean, very undersized. And it's five say, nine. Yeah, yeah. Oklahoma quarterback. Right. Exactly. Very mobile. You know, he's got a strong arm, but I mean, he's. I mean, he's under. And the thing is, is that on the NFL level, everybody's fast. I mean, you're playing the Big Twelve here. You're fast as a quarterback. Everybody in the NFL is fast. These linebackers can chase you down. This is really because his predecessor needs the same team, Baker Mayfield. Right. Came out and made such a big yeah. impact. And the Cardinals believe that new their new coach, Cliff Kingsbury, you know, somewhat, I don't even know where he gets this this reputation. Air, somewhat, air ball. Yeah, you know, somewhat of a quarterback whisperer and might be able to do some. Throw it up. Yeah, and I think a lot has to also do with Patrick Mahomes, what he was able to do in Kansas City yeah, last year. But people forget Patrick sat for a year, almost two years. I mean, he was behind um, Alex he's, Smith. He's also six two or three. He's also, isn't he? Isn't he? Yes, absolutely. You're not going to miss him in a crowd. Uh, I saw the Vegas uh, stuff back and forth, and I, my boys were commenting on it, and they both thought Vegas odds are uh, over and under 20 touchdowns. He'll score 20 touchdowns. Both my boys thought that was very low. Oh, okay. For Kyler Murray? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. We'll see. I mean, if he 
if he's the same Kyler Murray and looks like the same Kyler Murray on the field, then he's good to go. But this is a different game. Well, and he had guaranteed money in baseball, you know, before actually during his se- during his uh, yeah, during the season at Oklahoma, you know. And he, but he said he wants to play football. I mean, I don't know. all right. Speaking of football, uh, the audience knows I'm kind of an Alabama fan and mm-hmm. think they're going to beat everybody. And but did you see the the contract that Coach Dabo Sweeney signed? Signed like a ten year, ninety three million dollar yeah. deal yeah. to stay in Clemson. Whoa. I think I'll stay at Clemson. Mm-hmm. Why not? Biggest by far. Yeah, no. I think uh, Saban at Alabama is like five million, and he's going to be. A, he's he's already, but he's just solidified the fact he'll be a Clemson legend. Well, they Clemson played legend. Alabama three times. They beat him twice. Beat him twice. Yeah, what else? You know what else you want to do? <laughs> Who's going to win the uh, NBA? I think Golden State is going to again. Win. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I don't follow it closely, but I was watching the game the other night with this guy Harder. James Harden. Oh yeah, James Harden. Yeah, no, he's Harden. he's good. He's unstoppable offensively. He doesn't play much defense, but he, but he's good. He can shoot. He can shoot. He can dribble. I mean, and he he's he's short and he's kind of stocky and he doesn't seem to be fast, but he's very quick. He's Amazing. very quick. Amazing. Do we say anything about baseball? Oh, uh, no, there's no reason to talk about baseball. What, what about the guy who left uh, Washington? Oh, and Bryce went, Hopper, yeah. No what was that contract? It was the largest deal in baseball for about a week and a half until Mike Trout signed his deal to stay in Anaheim, I believe. Really? That's bigger? Oh, yeah. And Mike Trout's a better player. Uh, and what was that deal? How, what was oh, I've got to look it up. But it, it's a, it's a much, it, it was a much bigger deal. Uh, let's see if I can find this really quick. 12-year, $430 million. My gosh. Yeah. How old's the guy? 27 years old. I think he's going to play well till he's 40. Uh, that's, that seems to be the bet that they're making. Now, does this mean he's going to get paid this, or is this... Oh, most of baseball's money is guaranteed. This isn't like football. Wow. Yeah, this is a big... Well, how do they make that back? Will someone explain that? Somebody email me and explain how they make back $430 million. <laughs> That's a lot of hot dogs. They don't right. even do the hot dogs, I don't think. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it's uh, it's that time of year. I'm I'm waiting for football season. Yeah, you know, there's no by the time it's, by the, by the time we start paying attention to baseball, it's football season. So then there's another reason not to pay attention to. When it. is Phil Steele's uh, magazine out? Another month. We got to get through May, June, mid June. But I'm, I'll send him a message to see if we can get something a little earlier. A little earlier, yeah, yeah. for me, so I can. You know, Bryce it. Harper, 13 years, 330 million, and so he was the highest paid player for about a week, and then. I don't know how they make their money back. Someone someone who knows about money and investment in baseball and yeah. money ball, please explain that to me. Well, we'll see. All right. Thanks, Claude. All right, let's get to these terrific interviews. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. All right, joining us now is Sean Trendy, Senior Election Analyst for Real Clear Politics. Sean, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me. So you, I, 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 let's talk briefly about the Republican uh, run for president. Um, are there going to be any other challengers? I see Bill Weld announced he was going to challenge, and I, I thought he had a good one good line. He said, well, I, you know, I announced that I'm already number two. <laughs> Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, is he going to do anything? I, I mean, he's making noises, so so who knows? Um, but you know, the, the president has a you know like ninety percent job approval rating among Republicans. If there are challenges, they aren't going to go anywhere. I think most of the people uh, who are considering these challenges know and understand that. Let's go to the Democrats. Um, you did in early April um, a kind of. Uh profile sheet in which you uh, said whether if they were stocks would you buy or sell i'm just going to refer to that article and you can update 
um, as you wish. Joe Biden, who is now announced, 29.7%. That was a poll taken in early April. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He, he's, uh, you know, things have moved around since then. But, yeah, that's where he was at the beginning of the month. Your advice was sell. How come? You were, uh, you said up until a week or so ago, and this was early April, I was a heavy sell on Biden. Are you less now, more now? What? Yeah, so this is one where I've kind of updated my beliefs a little bit. You know, at the, at the time, there were the kind of, my kind of view was that the Democratic Party was going through this, you know, cultural moment with Me Too, that it was unlikely to nominate, uh, you know, 78-year-old white guy, and certainly not one who had these kind of touchy issues. Uh, in his past, but um, you know he, he's he's actually handled. I've, I've, and this is a guy who's run for president twice and won exactly zero primaries, so he doesn't have the world's greatest track record. But I have to admit he's handled this, I think, pretty well. Um, you know, I think he's realized that he's not going to win the woke primary. Uh, that his base is going to be among you know moderate, uh, traditionally liberal Democrats. Uh, and if he can get that group solidly behind him, he's going to be in a pretty good position. What's the, his biggest obstacle? Is it the Anita Hill thing? I, I think it's just generally, you know, he was elected to the Senate before I was born. Um, that had a lot less power when I used that line like 10 or 15 years ago, but I'm 46. He's been around forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he uh, and he was different then and the Democratic Party was then. And so he has these votes like, you know, the vote to grant Robert E. Lee his citizenship back, which plays very differently today than it did 40 years ago, and the Anita Hill thing. and But but he seems to have realized that, like, the voters who are really motivated by that are never going to vote for him. And so he's just kind of owning those votes a little bit, saying, you know, I would do things differently today, but that's how I thought then. I think that's the only tack he can take. See the odds on favorite right now? It's hard to say because he's in the midst of a polling surge. Um, I still think he's unlikely to be the nominee. You know, I think if other people get exposure, he's going to see his numbers decline, you know, kind of like Joe Lieberman. But, uh, but you know, I, I'm less sure of that, I guess, than I was uh, when I wrote that, that article. So if he's, uh, he was at 30 then or 29.7, would you buy or sell or hold? I'd probably still sell, but, okay. but not... Not with the degree of confidence I would have been passed. Okay. Bernie Sanders, 21.1% buy. Yeah, he's still a buy for me. You know, the Democrats have this kind of screwy primary system where they're, all their delegates are awarded proportionally. But to qualify, you have to cross a 15% threshold. Uh, so you have to, once you get 15% of the vote, the delegates are split up among those candidates to get the 15%. So you can have a system where, like, Kamala Harris might get, you know, a boatload of delegates in California, but not get any in Texas. For a candidate like Sanders, though, who kind of has this more or less evenly distributed base, he can rack up uh, a bunch of delegates very fast. So you don't get, let me see if I understand this, you don't get any delegates if you don't start by getting 15% of the primary vote. Exactly. Once you hit that 15%, it's proportional. If, if you're the only person that makes 15%, which is possible with 20 people running, okay, you got them all. That's, okay. that's exactly right. So you can have a scenario where, like you said, one person gets 15% and he gets them all, or you get two candidates who get 20% in Iowa, let's say, like they're going to split 50% of the delegates there. Okay. So it's a very, um, it's a very strange situation they have that they've created for themselves. All delegates are awarded proportionally. Say, say, say something about the super delegates in the Democrat Party. So 
when the Democrats uh, set up after uh, 1972 with the McGovern debacle, they set up the superdelegate system where, you know, party leaders, it's kind of a half-hearted attempt to bring back the smoke-filled room. So party leaders from the states and the National Party and such got a certain number of delegates to the National Party convention. Um, but after 2016, uh, they moved to weaken those superdelegates. So on the first ballot, those superdelegates don't vote anymore. Okay. So after that, they can play. So if there's a close race, those superdelegates can be key. But at the same time, like if Sanders comes out uh, as the pledged delegate leader, even if he doesn't have a majority and the superdelegates deny him the nomination, I mean, you, you can you can write a check on Trump being reelected uh, because those Bernie Sanders, those Bernie Sanders supporters already think he got messed over yes. Uh, yes. in 2016. And if he actually gets denied the nomination by superdelegates, they are going to go ballistic. Yeah, they won't vote for they, they won't they will they won't vote for the dem i don't think because because last time i was going to ask you that i mean they felt they got shafted last time did they get shafted last time i mean there were certainly things like hillary getting some of the debate questions i I think the big anger is that they felt like bernie didn't get a chance that the party decided that hillary clinton was going to be the nominee um and that that made it more difficult uh for sanders to win no okay i agree also i mean related to that is just if you had an intensity meter passion for bernie is it seems to me at the moment probably the brightest burning the brightest yeah it's, it's not something i entirely understand but you know i'm not the <laughs> I'm, I'm not the good classic candidate for a bernie supporter either so well i talked to somebody the other day who is uh 80 and they said warms my heart to see bernie getting so much support from these young people i think i'm gonna call my grandkids yeah. Okay. All right. Anyway, you know, I'm kind of the tail end of the generation that remembers the Cold War. I'm sure it's yeah. shocking to you yeah. uh, to see this happening. But yeah. So, uh, final conclusion on Bernie is bye. Right. Yeah. I think that this uh, nomination system is set up for him to have a, a decent shot at being the nominee. Kamala Harris, nine point nine percent. You say hold. You said hold in early April. Still, that she had a great rollout. Yeah. I might. I might sell a little, but. Um, you know, she she's hitting the right note on paper. I mean, I think she's potentially Marco Rubio. You know, on paper, everything's right, but the execution, you know, post rollout just hasn't been there. That's a um, her path depends on doing really well in California and then getting African American voters to uh, line up behind her, which would serve her well in the Southern Democratic primaries. So far, we don't see that happening, though. Uh, Non-white voters are actually behind Biden. What's going to have to happen is Harris is going to have to have a strong showing in Iowa or New Hampshire, uh, prove her viability. Barack Obama was not doing well among African-American voters until he won Iowa, and then there was a big shift. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I talked to a Democrat friend who said, I would just, if I were Kamala, I would just spend all my time in South Carolina. See, I don't think that's going to work. Um, you have to, the, the kind of line about being an African-American candidate for the presidency, you have to uh, demonstrate viability first. Uh, and so once Obama demonstrated viability and that he had a, he was, had a legitimate chance of winning, African-American voters got behind him strongly. I think Harris is going to have, and Booker are going to have to do the same thing. Um, so still sell. She seemed... Uh the rollout was impressive, I thought, indeed, but she seemed uncertain, too. By the way, let's just go back and talk about both Sanders and, and uh, Harris on the uh, Boston bomber getting to vote. Um, a lot of people gasped, but didn't deflate Bernie supporters? No, Bernie supporters are, I mean, they're, they're Bernie supporters are Bernie supporters. Um, 
there with them. I, I think I, I was a I was a little surprised to see you know Harris uh, how how far left she's been. But one one of the dings against her is going to be that she was a district attorney, a prosecuting attorney. So I yeah. think sure. that's part of why she's running farther to the left than I think she really wants to in this primary. But she said, I mean, the first thing she said, well, let's have a conversation about it, if I remember correctly. But in the next day, she said, oh, I don't know, uh, not while they're in prison, something like that. She hedged. Yeah, I mean, let's have a conversation. It's kind of the the classic, like, uh, you know, trying to blow it off. But some things you just don't say we need a conversation about. Yeah. Beto. Um, maybe should we talk about Beto and uh, and Pete Buttigieg in the same breath? Because a lot of people said that little Pete has pushed aside tall Beto. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think that's right. Like, I think I think Beto was running to be kind of the candidate of disaffected, generically liberal young voters, um, and Buttigieg has kind of elbowed in on that territory, you know. And I think. Um, you know, Beto has it is the thing. Like uh, he, he's the guy who can go stand on top of a, a counter and give a speech in a diner in Iowa and not Lukoki. And in a, a system like Iowa, where, you know, not a whole lot of voters vote and there's a lot of, of contact with voters that can serve Beto very well, actually. Um, so I would not be surprised to see him catch fire, uh, you know, later on in the system. But, but, but who knows? So you you still buy on Beto? Yeah, I think I think like I said, I think Beto has it. Can't be yeah. on that. Yeah, and Buttigieg, while we're at it, he's got it. Yeah, he's he's he. You know, when I when I wrote um, back in April, he, the, the the surge was just starting, um, and so far it seems to have legs. I mean, he's he's an impressive guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't you don't have to like everything he's doing, but he seems impressive. No, when you listen to him, his intelligence catches your attention. You know, yeah. sometimes just cleverness, but it's uh, it's a smart guy. Um, Elizabeth Warren. Now, what's what's happened to Elizabeth Warren? I, buy, sell, hold. She, she, someone quipped that she seems to be trying to run to be the candidate uh, that Hillary Clinton, that voters wanted Hillary Clinton to be. You know, the kind of smart, um, you know, wonky. Here's a bunch of policy papers and I know you won't read them, but hey, they're here. I don't know. I think her problem, though, is that unlike Hillary, like there, there's nothing Warren does that someone else in the Democratic field doesn't do better. You know, if if I see. you want someone who's going to be progressive, you can vote for Warren, or you can vote for Sanders, who's going to scream that the you know gears of the capitalist machine are yeah boiled with the blood of the working class. Um, if you want someone who's wonky, you can go with Klobuchar. If you want someone who you know is is kind of older and a little bit of a gray haired experience, you can go with Biden. So she really needs someone to falter, I think, before she really catches fire. Yeah, anything you can do, I can do better. They say that about, can say that about every aspect of... What about Amy Klobuchar? Does she have a shot? I think if Biden falters, she has a good chance of picking up establishment support. Okay, she gets the establishment lane as we go in now. I think actually, like, if Stacey Abrams gets in, of all people, you know, she has it. Whatever else you say about her, she's extremely charismatic and, and a natural politician, and she could, you know, succeed if, if Harris does not. But uh, generally speaking, I think the field is kind of naturally winnowing right now. Well, let's hope so. Let's <laughs> hope it's not growing much. Uh, it's going to violate uh, class size in the state of California pretty soon. Um 
Well, let's talk about the general. I've been reading some articles. You know, Trump is going to it's going to be a wipeout given the economic record and so on. I was listening to to uh, uh, Brad Parks scale president's campaign manager. Is he manager saying, you know, states in play that they now that it weren't before a lot of confidence. Are they overconfident or is there grounds for overconfidence? Um, yeah, I don't think, uh, I don't think this is going to be a wipeout. Um, you know, I, I think, I think part of it is just, you know, you, when I, you always have to take campaign talk with a, a grain of salt, right? Like you're not going to say, well, we're going to lose by 15 points for the first anyway. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think part of that's puffery. I think they know it's going to be a, a tough race. Um, but I think there's also some thought that, you know, Trump really did tap into something in that real in 2016 and the Democrats almost seem to be doubling down on what I think were some of the weaknesses of 2016 for them. So that said, I think 2020 is a different dynamic. I think this race is primarily about Trump. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about that. What should Trump stop doing? What should he do more of and what should Biden do more of and do less of? Yeah. I mean, Trump has to be Trump. I don't expect him to, you know, suddenly become a woke warrior or anything. You know, I mean, even just from a strategic standpoint, like he shouldn't do that, obviously. But, but at the same time, like I've always said that that Trump's mouth benefits him and his authenticity benefits him up to a point, and then he just does things that don't win him over any voters. It's like picking the fight uh, with Kizer Khan or whatever his name was right after the DNC. Um, or like the basketball player, Lorenzo Ball and his father, yeah. the fight with him. Like those things just don't get him anywhere. And I understand that he likes counterpunch and he's of the school of thought that you don't let things slide. But, uh, I think that's also part of what turns Americans off. They don't like a president tweeting crazy things at two in the morning. Um, and he needs, it's a distraction from his core message, which is, Hey, you know, they've been saying the economy is going to collapse. For two years now, and we still have a, a robust, strong economy, both for me to keep that going. So I, I focus and emphasize your achievements. Um, I notice approval, disapproval, you know, still disapproval, 50, mid 50s, maybe 60, um, but mid 50s anyway, um, maybe 60, depending on the poll, you would know better which which would, would be more reliable. But I take it that a majority of the country could not approve of Donald Trump, but still reelect him. Isn't that what happened last time? So part of the issue is that president, you know, people point to presidential approval. Um, but part of the issue uh, is that Donald Trump, um, or Barack Obama, rather, had a surge in his approval towards the end. Um, so job approval is partially what pe- is partially what people think about the president. But in an election year, there's, I think there is some degree of, okay, I've decided that I have to vote for this guy, so I'm going to start saying that I approve of him. Um, so I'm not, uh, you know, that 43% job approval is not good, but it's roughly where Barack Obama was uh, at this point in his re-election campaign. And I think, you know, there's a chance for Trump to pull over some of those soft disapprovers. Uh, help me with my memory. Where was the approval, disapproval uh, before the election of 2016? His favorables were in the 30s. Okay. Um, and he won. Yeah. Now, favorable is different than job approval, though. Um, you know, the classic <laughs> example is, is Bill Clinton, who in right. 2000 had a favorable rating that was in the toilet, but had a job approval rating in the 60s. Wow. Okay. So people do separate those things. Okay. And and what, wasn't, weren't, weren't, what was the kind of... Um, Average number in the polls the day before election 2016. Wasn't Hillary up by six or eight or ten? Uh, nationally, Hillary was up by two or three points. 
Two or three. Okay. Yeah, which is actually where the popular vote ended up. It's sure. Just that it was distributed uh, in a way that was favorable to Trump. Is it true that, I read this, that the three million more votes that she got, um, you could say were all in California? Well, I mean, that's how, <laughs> yeah, if you took California out, Trump would have won the popular vote, but, okay. you know, okay. if, if you... But he won a lot, she won a lot of states with a lot of votes. Yeah. What am I missing? What should we look for? What happens in the next two weeks, three weeks, month? What What's a pivotal event? First Democrat debate? Yes. You know, where this is really, the, the, the history of primaries is littered with the bodies of, of early frontrunners who collapse. Um, you know, it's mostly name at recognition at this point. Um, it, it's kind of like Joe Lieberman in 2004. Like, he was polling really well, and then Democrats got a look at some of their other um, candidates, and and you know he never he didn't get off the floor. Um, so yeah, June twenty sixth, I think, is the first uh, Democratic debate. How are they going to do that debate? It's going to be a big stage. <laughs> are they all going to be there? Or is it going to be the one one and then the other based on polling or something? Yeah, I I haven't gotten an answer on that. Obviously, it's still a couple months off, so I'm not sure it's written in the ground. But there's no way they can let all of them on the stage at once. They're going to have to do like what the Republicans did in 2016 and have like the, the varsity and the Jay-Z debate. How many Republicans were there? 16? Yeah. Sean, thank you. Thank you very much. Very helpful. We will uh, be considerate today because we'll be inconsiderate later by calling you off. And how's that? <laughs> You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. And let's welcome to the show for the first time, Steve Off, the missionary of Wall Street, uh, also the chief investment officer of Federated Investors. Did I get the priority right there? That's it, Bill. Okay. Uh, I do I do have one question about uh, the chief investment officer of business. Uh, I don't know much about that world, but we'll get to that later. Your book, The Missionary of Wall Street, fascinating, moving, encouraging. Um, George Eliot says... Uh, about excellence. Uh, excellence is important because it encourages us about life generally. Your book encourages us about life generally. You go to the streets of New York, very successful businessman, and you uh, talk to people uh, and invite them to return to their Catholic faith. Is that correct? Yeah, that's uh, that's what we do, Bill. How'd you start? Uh, I started very reluctantly, Bill. Uh, it's kind of laid out in the book. Uh, I had a kind of uh, come-to-Jesus moment uh, back in 2002 where I uh, nearly uh, met my maker. Fatal heart condition, right? Yeah, and uh, had the opportunity to have anointing of the sick and uh, last rites. And up to then, Bill, I had drifted from being a Catholic altar boy in high school to being a pretty much a fallen away Catholic. And then maybe after I got married to my wife, who's a devout Catholic, uh, probably more what you'd call a, uh, a lukewarm Catholic, a Sunday morning Catholic, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and I had my first confession uh, in about 20 years. And the takeaway from that was, was actually a man that you know, Father John Connor. Sure. You know Father John oh, sure. And, uh, you know, he said, Steve, you, you've got a lot of talents here um, that you're the steward of, but you're not being a very good steward. And, um, you know, you, you're using them for your own purposes, not for God's. And it really struck me that I needed to answer the call, if you will. The Lord's always pinging us and we just don't pick up the phone. So calls started coming in, uh, ended up in Mexico on, on some missions and, um, you know, I had some very moving experiences there, which we could talk about perhaps. But then in uh, 2009, got a phone call from my wife. I was in Pittsburgh. I've got a lot of staff there, um, you know, middle of very tough markets, you may remember. Long day. 
And she calls me up and says, Steve, I, I signed us up to do this mission in New York. I go, sweetheart, what do you mean mission in New York? She goes, yeah, mission, like you do in Mexico. I go, sweetheart, it's not like Mexico. I mean, New York, uh, you know, they're going to be putting cigars out in our friends. What, are we going to go out on the streets? She goes, oh, yeah, out on the streets. So, you know, the answer to that was no, no, never. And uh, a couple of months later, there I was. Um, you know how that works. Yep. And I put that story in there because I think a lot of people look at what we've done since, you know, over a decade, we've talked to over 3 million people and probably brought 10 to 15,000, maybe more back to the sacrament of confession uh, and the church, maybe for the first time in a very, very long time. And people think, well, you must be some holy roller or some saint or something. And, uh, you know, the Lord doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. We just answered the call. And, um, from there, he did the work, but uh, it's been a remarkable story. How does it work? What do you, uh, give us a, a scenario. You leave work, you change clothes, are you in a suit, you take the subway, uh, you use your car and driver. I'm just curious about how you make the transition yeah, no, from I, Superman to, to missionary. Yeah, I, I leave the office. I mean, we go, we do it four times a year, um, all through Holy Week, and then three other you know weekends uh, around or weeknights, uh, different holidays like the uh, San Gennaro Festival is an example in September. Um, yeah, change into jeans and uh, a mission uniform, a t-shirt that says, be not afraid on it on the back uh, with, a, with a crucifix. Right. We find that going out um, in that manner, Bill, actually is more attractive to people, sure. uh, less intimidating. We just go out there and, you know, it's a kind of a funny pickup line, but it's like, are you Catholic? Uh, I got I got to hear the responses you get to that. I mean, the outrageous ones, well, the funny ones. Kind in the book, we, uh, you know, that know. question is so provocative, <laughs> right? So you get different responses. Uh, one response you get is no, definitely not. Been there, done that. Um, sometimes much worse than that. You know, bags of dog gone dung or whatever. <laughs> uh, so you get those, and then you get the uh, you know God no. A response. Uh, then you get, yeah, I am Catholic, uh, and then you get the um, the no response, which in the book we note is usually a Catholic um, yeah. who doesn't want to say no. Uh, most of the Catholics that say no, by the way, come back 15 minutes later and confess that they are Catholic. Interesting. It bothers them. Interesting. And well, and then you know it, you, you get into a pretty provocative dialogue. I, you know, we, we approach people joyfully and lovingly, and um, you know, we'll say, well, uh, have you considered coming back to church? And, oh, no, it never could do that. And you get a series of different responses. Um, you know, too embarrassed to tell the priest. I pray to God. I have my own relationship with God. Each of these is almost the title of a chapter in the book. Of course, of course. Uh, and, and so we try to go through all those with people. And, and we've come up with, I think, pretty good ways to respond. Um, what we don't do, though, Bill, is we don't preach. Uh, we mostly ask questions. And as I tell the missionaries, if you approach people with love and joy, uh, you can really attract them back to the Lord. And uh, many folks are out there now. Uh, this is the fastest growing religion in the country, ex-Catholics. Really? And, oh, man. Yeah. And they're kind of pursuing uh, something in the culture that they've been told will make them happy. Uh, but they found it's pretty shallow, and most of them, deep inside, are not happy. 
and uh, they run into a missionary who is joyful, which is different than happy, right? Joyful is a Catholic, yes. a Christian, um, that knows that he or she is a beloved son or daughter of the Lord, and um, isn't a perfect son or daughter, but is on a journey with him and is confident in the future because of that. And that gives us a certain fearlessness and joyfulness that people say, Jed, like some of that. Yeah, ask some penetrating questions and you can, in a street side encounter, which is what I think is so remarkable, Bill, about the, the story of the mission in the book, is in a street side encounter, which is sort of anonymous in some ways, you know, you've just met someone for the first time, you don't know their background, they don't know yours. None of them have ever figured out they're talking to the chief investment officer of a major, like they one or two have. But you can really drill down deep with someone, it's sort of like a radical intervention. A couple of questions, just to be clear about what we're talking about. When you say we, who's the we? Well, we are, is me and the missionaries. We've got, we've had over a thousand missionaries down there now, Bill. We've had uh, folks from all over the place come and help us. Guys like you? Yeah, I've got other uh, members. Uh, I'm a member of something called the Lumen Institute. Oh, I know Lumen, sure. You're with, with them. And uh, so those are Catholic businessmen, Wall Street guys, um, and women. Uh, who trying to get better formed in their faith and then bring that to others. And importantly, the Red and Christie movement has been a big source of missionaries for us. They're a movement within the Catholic Church, which I think you're also familiar with, that are evangelical in their approach. Uh, that was a gentle. That was a gentle touch. Religiously evangelical, and, and so they come. They help us. But we've had over the years other movements in the city that we've trained. Uh, some Opus Dei folks have helped us. Uh, the Sisters of Life have been out there. They're they're like atomic weapons, frankly. There's something about a young, joyful nun in a habit mm-hmm. that even a former Catholic really can't say no to. Yeah. So when yeah. you get them, our life gets a lot easier. They just sort of rake people into the church. The church does know what it's doing in those early stages of education, doesn't it? By planning things which can never be fully lost or forgotten, right? Like the memory of the nun who taught you or guilt, right? Yeah. We play on those memories, you know, like, well, another thing we'll do to get them in is we'll, um, we have a, a candle service every night with adoration, although a lot of people don't, ex-Catholics don't really know what adoration is, but um, they have memories of lighting candles in church that are a joyful time for them. And uh, people react very well. And of course, not just Catholics. I mean, all sorts of faiths. We've had Muslims and Jews come into the church to light candles. Um, People find that experience very beautiful. And then once they get inside the church, the Holy Spirit begins to work on them. Our goal um, is to get them to the sacrament of reconciliation if they're Catholic, because we think a lot of folks have kind of built a wall between them and the Lord um, by not utilizing, I call it the lost sacrament. Um, I think it's one of the things that, as a church, we have not done as good a job as we could um, promoting that sacrament. What's the sacrament? What's the name again? It's the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Oh, all right. Well, it is. It is penance, right? Isn't that a... Penance. Yeah. Yeah. Penance, confession. um, Okay. It goes by different names. But, yeah, our goal is to get them there and, and get a chance to sort of lighten their load. Uh, many folks think they've done something that's unforgivable, uh, yeah. and it's hard for them to communicate with God yeah. because they're kind of hiding from him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one other question, and just because I've, I've found this lately, I am not a missionary like you, and um, 
I'm sort of more like where you were before this. I'm, I go to confession regularly because uh, we have a, a priest, a legionary of Christ, you know the movement very well, I know, who uh, visits us and uh, hounds me. He's my hound of heaven. So he makes sure. I, but, you know, I, I could be much stronger. I mean, I frankly, why I'm confessing to you, I don't know. I'm just moved. Uh, my parish here is such that uh, it's almost always a political sermon, and so I avo- avoid even Mass on Sundays because I don't want to hear, you know, propaganda, political propaganda. Uh, yeah. It's just the neighborhood I live in. But, 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 but people know I'm a Catholic. I'm a fairly public Catholic. And... Um, I was, you know, often called the Catholic Secretary of Education under Reagan because I believed in school choice. But that aside, lately people have said to me, how can you stay in that church given the abuse stuff? You must hear that. Yeah. That must come up, right? What, what do you say about that? Yeah, I, I say that, um, first of all, I, I, some, especially I'm talking to someone who's been deeply hurt by it, the first thing I have to do is, share their pain. I mean, um, you know, it's been a terrible tragedy what's happened there. I also remind them that the church is, is a, is a mystery. It's a, um, it's eternal. It's the Lord's church, right? It's not our church. It's his church. And it's something he handed down to us and, and we're stewards of it. And we're not always good stewards. Uh, you know, the church over the millennia has had a number of scandals and near-death experiences, if you will. Sure. Because um, we're flawed instruments, you know. No, I wrote about it in a book. I did a book called Tried by Fire about the first thousand years of Christianity. And things popes did then were unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, yes. Somehow or other. Made it through. Soldiers on. And it because it's the route to him. And, um, and ultimately, that's reality. I have a friend who had a good answer. I was uh, talking about this uh, just before going on an interview. Another guy in the green room on TV was there, Catholic. He's written about this. And I said, what do you say? You're a very prominent Catholic. What do you say when people bring this up? He said, I say, I go with Jesus, not Judas. Yeah. We all have a responsibility to do that individually. Uh, you know, I think too many of us, and I, I was there, you know, as a fallen away or, you know, if lukewarm Catholic. I mean, we kind of think of it as the priest problem, and, you know, we're just here to go to the the Sunday sermon or whatever, but uh, we all have a responsibility to uh, move the Church forward. It's an evangelical, it's one true apostolic faith, and uh, we're all called to be apostles. Some of us don't pick up the call, but, um, so yeah, I think it's a tragedy what's happened. And I think the church is going through that. I think this is not the first time. And it's time for us to tighten our belts and um, and push on. But they got to get serious, too, right? I mean, they have to get tough. They have to get rid of these guys and straighten right. the thing out. You know, we could get in this whole topic, but, you know, from a, a Wall Streeter's perspective on the thing, Bill, um, you know, clearly we have issues with governance that need sure. to address. Sure, sure. I mean, we have a kind of medieval governance structure that's right. That's right. Uh, in the church and that's got to be fixed i think it's going to get fixed out of this sooner or later the church moves slowly sure does you uh, one of the things you point out in the book is because um, a lot of people hearing this think you're down in what we used to call i grew up in brooklyn down in the bowery you know talking to the, the homeless on the street and you and you do but you talk to people who are well-dressed going into high highfalutin restaurants too right 
Oh yeah, I mean, um, it, yeah, it's interesting. I, I get the reaction. People think, well, where, where in the well, not the Bowery these days is pretty up. I know, I know. <laughs> my neighborhood is too. I couldn't where afford my neighborhood. Do this, Steve, uh, and it's like no, actually, it's in one of the most affluent neighborhoods of New York in Soho. Of course. And while, sure, we do get homeless to come through, um, actually heading over to the shelter over there at the Bowery, you know, I would say less than 3% of the the souls that we've brought in are that, you know, from that um, walk of life. It's mostly folks literally on their way to a restaurant um, for a very nice meal with their friends who suddenly have an encounter with the Lord when they get stopped by us and find themselves in the church instead, and then 30 minutes later coming out and hugging us and thanking thanking us for being there. What's the oddest thing that's ever happened? Most transformative thing or most unforgettable thing? I mean, I imagine people come back to you after time, too, right? Yeah, I, there's so many okay. stories okay. in the book, but I, I would Tell say the very first one for me, uh, right at the beginning there, on this dark, misty yeah. alley in, in Chinatown, and, and we're not supposed to be there. I mean, the, the, the whole, it doesn't really go into this, but you know what, what was I doing there? The answer is, the Lord kind of put a series of coincidences in place that had me accidentally there by myself, which is something I advise the missionaries not to do. And then, you know, no one in the mist is there for 30 minutes. And suddenly this ex-con on a drug run shows up. And there's this incredible interaction between the missionary uh, and this man who's on his own spiritual journey. And you can see in that interaction that both of these people who are alone at the beginning of the story, the story is called No Longer Alone, but I'm alone, this guy Socks is alone, uh, and neither of us alone as the story ends. And it ends kind of mysteriously with Socks going off into the mist, um, but he's changed in some way, and the missionary has changed. And that's a lot about what the mission is about. Sometimes we you know, we really bring someone back, and as you say, you get that big hug, and you know you've made a change in their lives. Sometimes all you've done is move them a step closer to the Holy Spirit, but that was a very moving experience for me, and that's why I start the book off there. Tell us about a story where you planted the seed, didn't know it, and then months or years later, you found out, you heard that you had done that. Yeah, we had one, uh, actually, this is fresh on my mind because it happened just last uh, two weeks ago during Holy Week. We were down there, and we had someone who showed up, and um, we stopped her. And she said, you know, um, she pulled out of her pocket a rosary that we had given them th- her three years ago. And she said, you know, I've been praying on this rosary for the last three years. You guys wanted me to come to confession, and I wasn't ready for it, and I'm ready now. And I was hoping you were going to stop me. And they went. You are, um, we're not done, but I do want to talk about you being the chief investment officer of Federated Investors. I read somewhere, correct me if I'm wrong, that you've approached something like 3 million people in the missionary work, and about 15,000 have come back to the church. That is not a great percentage, Mr. Chief Investment Officer. Point zero zero five, as I do it. Pointed out. I go, Steve, like, this is like really low margin. Yeah. But, I say, yeah, but I make it up on volume. Okay. You know? Yeah, okay. The other thing I say to him is 15,000 times eternity, yeah. last time I checked, is it's, eternity. It's bigger than 3 million, yeah. It's a big number. Yeah. 
I, what I'm hoping I do with the book is inspire more people to do this, Bill. I, I, uh, you know, maybe not in as radical a fashion um, as what we're doing here on the streets of New York, but I think we all need to be better at engaging on matters of faith with others around us. And uh, the secular culture today has pushed us inside our parish walls. They really don't want us outside those walls. Um, but if we're going to change this culture, um, we need to individually. I mean, certainly uh, shows like yours help a lot at a broad level. But individually, we also have an accountability personally uh, to get out there and engage in dialogue with people about matters of faith, even though the culture really doesn't want us to do that. And that's kind of one of the reasons I wrote the book. Yes, the book is The, the Missionary of Wall Street, Stephen Auth, A-U-T-H, is the, is the author. If people want to find out more, want to become a missionary, want to start in their own community, what do you, what's your advice to, or, or what's the information? Well, one, I would read the book because it is written as a kind of, well, it is a bit of a page turner because I wanted something that people would enjoy reading. But in addition to that, it's kind of a field guide for how you do this. So, um, mm -hmm. and it grew out of, you know, the call that we got from a lot of uh, movements in the city here, groups in the city, you know, can you train us in how to do this? And so in a way, it's a field guide. Then, you know, I would certainly check the Regner Christie uh, website where you can get more information about the mission. Uh, you can find me uh, as well. And um, we'll be very glad to help folks. Uh, you know, my wife and I run a training session um, you know, we, we can, you know, if we've got critical mass, we're very willing to do that for a group that wants us to get started doing this kind of thing. Again, it's not just doing this, though. I think, you know, I think the book will have appeal to people who just want to be a little braver about their faith. I mean, maybe not all the way out to the streets of New York, but there's other ways uh, and parallels here that I think are helpful. And P.S., I would say, Bill, you know, I mentioned the, the CIO of Federated, and clearly these two things are intertwined with me, but one of the great things for me, one of the great unexpected fruits and benefits of this work is that, frankly, it's made me a better leader. Uh, you know, my business yeah. has been so much more successful since I got involved with this. I, I think I've just become a better leader in applying some of these principles in the workplace. Interesting. I saw, I want to end, I want to say a couple things to you, which may or may not be worthwhile, but I noticed uh, an interview you did, I can't remember with whom, but with someone about the, the Notre Dame and the fire. And you, you mentioned, I think I remember correctly, you said when you go to Paris, it's the first place you go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was on one of the big networks the morning after the fire. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, they know I'm Catholic and we were talking about that. And, um, you know, I've heard your, you know, I actually heard your podcast about it during Holy Week around the same time, I think, that I was on the TV. But I thought our reactions were kind of similar. I mean, it was so tragic uh, for me that night to watch that cathedral. And, you know, the first thing I always do when I get to Paris and I get there in business a lot, you know, is go to that cathedral. And I can even think when I first went there, uh, in the early seventies, um, maybe late seventies, but I was already at that point a kind of fallen away Catholic, frankly. But there's something about um, that church, and you know the flying buttresses allowing them to create these shimmering walls of stained glass that yeah. literally bring heaven onto earth. I mean, in the sacrament, that's kind of that is what happens. Heaven comes to earth. And the feeling that somehow you're in heaven 
in a kind of remote way, maybe. Yes. But when you're in those churches, especially Notre Dame, which has such history, it's very, very moving. And, and watching it, um, and, and, you know, what kept coming to mind, Bill, um, was it was that Monday night, and we actually met up with a group of French tourists that night out on the streets because uh, it was the Monday of Holy Week, and we ended up in the church with them praying for the cathedral. But what, what I was remembering was this story in the book um, down in Soho when I'm standing alone again. I don't know. These stories, I'm alone. I'm not supposed to be, but it's dark. It's cold. I'm under a street lamp in a circle of light, and a group of young French people come by. And I asked them, hey, are you guys Catholic? And uh, they say, no, we're not Catholic. I said, come on. I mean, all French people are Catholic. And they said, no, we're not. <laughs> and I'm connecting with one individual. He's the one of the group that's responding to me. And they're dragging him into the out of the circle of the light into the darkness. I mean, it's really like the imagery here. And I say to him, I said, well, what are you then? And he says in English, we are nothing. Wow. And he and I lock eyes, and he understands the irony of that statement. And I I know I've got him, and then his friends drag him off. And I, 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 to this day, still pray for this young man. I I think there was a moment there where I could have brought him in, um, but uh, he was dragged off. And that's sometimes what happens uh, out on the streets. But I, I thought of that story, and I thought of Notre Dame, and um, you know, I'm not trying to kick a dog when it's down or anything, but it is interesting what's happened to the faith in France. Uh, yep. And it was very sad to watch that cathedral come Yeah. Down. Impact. Boy, you said something earlier that threw me off. You listen, you've listened to my podcast before? I did. My goodness. I was going through it. this Notre Dame thing, and um, wow. you had some very beautiful things you said about it as the kind of cradle of civilization in some ways. Well, the other thing, the and, point I was uh, trying to make was... a course on civilization. I thought to myself, well, Bill, if you ever do that course, call me up. Yeah. I would love to do that. We, You may have heard, Bill, um, Evelyn and I do a tour of the Met called uh, Man's Search for God, a history of art through the prism of faith. And we do it four or five times a year. It covers the entire narrative of human experience in the art of the Met, but through the eyes of faith. And um, it's very, very beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I've thought about, actually, I got some response to that, Steve. I might want to follow up with you because people have said, I'd like to do that course. I said, you could do an entire course on art, literature, history, philosophy, theology, music, just using one prop, and that's yeah, well, pr- some prop. Up, I'm, I'm okay, okay. The other thing I said, and this this is, I was watching the news, it was all, so much of it was anthropological, like, this is a church and people go there because they believe God is there, and I finally burst out and I said, yeah. God is there! It's not, don't, stop yeah. looking at this like you're looking at some native people somewhere. Oh, isn't it, isn't it quaint that they believe this? No, there's, they right. believe this because it's, it's there. The moment, um, Bill, uh, in this TV clip, it was with Maria Bartiromo, actually, I'm talking about, um, heaven on earth there, you know, and, and God is there. You're right. And this idea that, as you called it, an anthropological discussion, um, yeah. it's, it's sad. In some yeah. Ways. yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's what, in a way, the other side of what drives us missionaries. Um, you know, God is real. He's alive. And when we treat him in that way, we cut ourselves off. 
it's not the root to happiness. Actually, there's a lot of sadness out there. That's right. That's right. Well, Plato says, Socrates says in one of the dialogues, he says, pleasure is distinct from happiness. Pleasure is like a, a bowl with holes in it. We call it a colander today. And the faster you pour it in, the faster it runs out. I always, that always stuck with me as a philosophy student. But true happiness, you, know, you talk about the walls, the way we're walled off by all these distractions. I was thinking of an interview with Walker Percy. I don't know if you know his work, but he's my favorite novelist, Catholic novelist. And uh, in an interview, they said, how come you're a Catholic? And he said, oh, I could go on and on about the truths, I think, that are in the church, but I'll give you a short answer. Look at the alternatives. So what should I be, a vegetarian, an animist, an atheist? Yeah. yeah what, what, what gives true and solid contentment and a sense of meaning? There's a beautiful integrity to our faith, Bill. Yes, sir. It all so well fits together, and it's so moving um, when we meet. You know, the, the provocative question, are you Catholic, that we started the interview with, uh, you know, it's really interesting when we get people of other faiths who initially um, are a little hostile with that question, but many of those discussions end up very beautiful and very loving. Um, yeah. And sometimes they'll get to the point where they ask if they could go to confession, you know, and I have to tell them, well, you can talk to a priest, um, you know, without being baptized and confirmed a Catholic, you can't avail, you know, you can't go to the sacrament of confession, but there's something very beautiful about that sacrament that the Lord put it there for a reason. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's one of the great beauties of our faith. I call it the lost sacrament. Um, that, you know, I think really helps on the spiritual journey. It's helped me a lot. The, um, the Frank Sinatra song says, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Make it, make, be a missionary in New York City. Pretty good example. You can do it there, you can do it anywhere, right? Tough well, place. That was another reason to write the book, because it seems so mad and so crazy. Um, I think you come away from it hopefully inspired that, uh, you know, maybe we could all do a little more. I got to tell you this story. I know you've met many popes, right? Yeah. I've met only one, and that was John Paul, and I met him twice. And the first time, I was standing in line with my wife, and I was the Secretary of Education. And as we approached him, I was thinking about what I was going to say, and I totally forgot. He turned to me, and he said, oh, Mr. Bennett, the Secretary of the United States, a very, very important job. And I got totally tongue-tied, totally lost. And I said, in my worst Brooklyn way, I got a tough job. What about your job? <laughs> you know, so st stupid. Where did yeah. I think I was? Ebbets Field? You know? God. And, and I, I regretted it. And then three years later, we were back with our sons. And he had the Parkinson's then. You know, it was trembling. And we got to the altar, and I rehearsed him. I rehearsed, I rehearsed. And when I got there, he nodded and you know a little little pat on the, on the on the head and i said i am not afraid and i said what i wanted to say and your shirt says be not afraid right yeah be not afraid be not afraid thank you steve thank you bill thank you very very much steve off you're listening to the bill bennett show claude that does it for today's show. Pretty interesting. Uh, I think so. A little politics, mm -hmm. electoral politics, a little missionary work. Yeah. Even a little investment advice. <laughs> I should have asked for some. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. See, I did it without asking you. There you go. 
Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. Let us know what you thought of these interviews. Let us know what you thought of Steve Auth and his work uh, with those rosary beads uh, downtown New York City. Mm-hmm. I'm going up to New York. I wonder if I should bring some rosary beads. Yeah, you could join him one night. I think I'll just bring some holy water. <laughs> Someone asked me, they said, do you Catholics drink that stuff? I said, no. No, of course not. You, you, know, you, you bless yourself with it. Or you do the... Yeah. I mean, the, sign, the what? I'm, sign of the, how long has it been since you were a Catholic? It's been a while. But I'm familiar in those, I mean, I'm comfortable in, in those situations. I mean, I know when to kneel and stand up and sit down and stand. And I know most of the call and responses. I still remember those. And I know when you walk in, you, you dip your finger in and you, you know. Mm-hmm. Sign of the cross. I still do that from time to time when I pray. Do you? Sign oh, absolutely. When I'm good. finished, I, right. I just, you know. We're going to get you back. Yeah. No, I, I, I would understand why. Too loud at evangelical churches now. Yeah, that's right. I need a little quiet. Your son just... sleeps, though. Right. <laughs> right. When you want a nice, peaceful thing where you can rest, go to a Catholic church because the sermons are terrible. It's <laughs> not the point of it, of course. The point is transubstantiation. Correct. We don't preach like they do in your church. Right, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the heart of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we're there for. Fellowship. <laughs>